several that have a principle that I hope we'll have time to get through in detail, but we may not, and that's irreducible complexity. There was a beginning. We can prove that scientifically. It was caused. You destroy science if you do not accept that. You can argue about what the cause was, but there has to be a cause. So what we're talking about here is what was the cause? Last choice. And one evidence of design is intuitive design. Let me give you an example. Some years ago, I was involved in a program in Florida, and I was staying with a couple who lived in a house out in the boondocks. And as I pulled into their driveway, I noticed they had a pond. They had a pretty nice pond, except it was being pumped dry. I said, what are you, going, what are you doing? And the guy said, well, the pond needs to be dug a little deeper, and uh, it's full of algae. We're going to clean all the water out, and we're going to rebuild it. And I looked down there, and there's a bunch of turtles. Must have been hundreds of turtles. And I said, what are you going to do with these, all these turtles? He said, well, I called the county ag agent. He said, don't worry about it. They'll find their way out of there. So I'm thinking, okay, uh, yeah, they'll burrow down in the mud. Didn't think too much about it. So after the lectures that night, around midnight, we pulled back into the guy's driveway. And in the driveway, there was a herd of turtles going across the driveway. Well, what do you call a whole bunch of turtles going one direction? I call it a herd. Herd of turtles going one direction. I had to get out of the car and move the turtles off a driveway so the guy could get into his garage. So we went down there the next morning and looked at the thing, and there was an interstate blasted through the yucca and the underbrush going in one direction. Well, we were kind of curious. There weren't any turtles left in the pond. But we followed that interstate, and about a mile down the road, we came to another pond. And the last of the turtles were just getting to the new pond. All of the turtles had gone in one direction, and they'd known which way to go. Okay, a little science lesson here. It's called polarized light. See, polarized light is light that is like throwing a rock at a pond. If you throw a rock, a flat rock at a pond, does it matter how you throw it? Well, yeah, I mean, surely none of you have been so delinquent that you haven't thrown a rock at a pond, right? Okay, if you throw it parallel to the water, the rock will skip. We've all skipped rocks, right? If you throw it vertical to the water, it will penetrate. But do you know that light is just like a flat rock? Light is created with a certain plane. It's two-dimensional. We call it electromagnetic radiation. It has an electric component and a magnetic component. If you throw light vertically into the pond, it will penetrate and even at a slow angle. But if you throw it parallel to the surface, it will skip just like a rock. So reflected light is light that is flat. It's polarized. Hey, understand how your polarized sunglasses work? So you got a lens in those glasses that has a vertical plane. So reflected light, which is horizontal, can't penetrate into your eye. That's how your Polaroids work. You know the turtles wear Polaroids? Yeah. The turtle's cornea is just like what happens with the light. The light that skips is polarized. So as the turtle looks at the horizon, only the light that is parallel to the ground, the polarized light, gets into his retina. 
So as the turtle's sitting there in his dried up pond, looking at the horizon, only the light that is being reflected, meaning there is water, is getting to his eyes. So he just heads for the light. Isn't that incredible? Incredible. And by the way, it explains a lot of things. You understand now why they won't let you turn on your porch lights if you live on the beach in Florida? Because the reflected light will cause the turtles that are out in the water to come into your porch. So they don't let you have lights on the beach. That's intuitive design. Now, I'm not going to suggest to you that God had to design the turtles, whatever you believe about that. That's just one example. One example. I've got over 200 examples in each of those five books, which means I have a 1,000 examples like the one I've just shown you. But there's another kind of design. It's called architectural design. Another little lesson here. This is a mathematical one. There's a thing called Fibonacci's ratio. Fibonacci's ratio is a thing where if you look at certain numbers in a sequence, like up here at the top, you can see that they have a particular pattern. So as we're looking at the screen, you see a series of numbers. One, two, three, five, eight. What this is is one number added to the next number, which makes the next number. So one plus two is three, two plus three is five, eight plus 13 is 21, 21 plus 34 is 55, and so forth. You say, okay, big deal. Well, if you take a class in architecture at the beginning level, you will see they use that to talk about the way in which you build fundamental structures. Because if you use Fibonacci's numbers, you get is what is called a pleasing rectangle. That just simply means when people look at it, they say, oh, it looks pretty nice. <laughs> if you make some other ratio, people don't like it. And here's an interesting fact about this. When you cut a square off of a Fibonacci rectangle, what you get is another Fibonacci rectangle. Cut a square off of that, you get another Fibonacci rectangle, and so forth. And if you connect the corners, you get what is called a Fibonacci spiral. You say, all right. <laughs> big deal. Well, it is a big deal in architecture. Because when you have a spiral staircase, if you want people to like it, you better make it a Fibonacci spiral. And what's interesting is that God must like it. Because he uses it over and over and over. The arms of a spiral galaxy are wound in a Fibonacci spiral. If you have the curl of a wave, it curls with the Fibonacci spiral. If you look at water going to down the drain, counterclockwise in the northern hemisphere, clockwise in the southern. You know what the first thing had happened when I got to Ecuador was? Wanted to see if the water went down the spiral counterclockwise, filled up the kitchen sink, pulled the plug, sure enough, the water went down the drain the wrong way. Well, there's a gravitational explanation for that. But the important thing is to understand this occurs when there's no gravity. Subatomic particles curl with the Fibonacci spiral. We see the Fibonacci spiral in living things. Snails curl their shells in a Fibonacci spiral. Even living snails like the Nautilus. Snails of all kinds use the Fibonacci spiral. The teeth of a groundhog curls with the Fibonacci spiral or a grizzly bear. Every beak of every bird there is curls with the Fibonacci spiral. The horns of animals living and extinct curl with the Fibonacci spiral. You see the Fibonacci spiral in the curl of a chameleon. You see the Fibonacci spiral in the petals of a magnolia. You see it in sunflower seeds. You see it in the curl of a pine cone. You see it in the tubers of potatoes and tomatoes and pumpkins. You see the Fibonacci spiral in a fingerprint. Now give me an evolutionary explanation here. How are you more fit? Because your fingernail curls with your fingerprint curls with a Fibonacci spiral than it would be if you didn't. What's natural selection going to work on? 
And it's not just seen in things like this. We could go on and on here. There are volumes of books written on Fibonacci spirals and insects, in spiders, in chlorotella algae, in the cochlea of the inner ear, in the DNA helix, in the umbilical cord of a baby. The Fibonacci spiral is an architectural design that has no reason to exist. It doesn't offer strength. It doesn't offer survival. So why is it there? Let me give you an illustration. This is South Bend, Indiana, where I taught school for 41 years. This is the Hillman residence. Very famous architect is on that place. He's called Frank Lloyd Wright. Isn't that beautiful? You're looking at the north side of the building. The windows are very small. On the other side of the building, the windows are very large. And they're made of a special kind of glass. This building is so incredibly beautifully designed. That even in our winters, and it gets 20 below where I live, the guy never has to turn on his furnace. Frank Lloyd Wright has all kinds of interesting structures. I was in Arizona, University of Arizona, I was in a limo going to the airport. And we went by this place. I said to the little drummer, Oh, stop, 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 I gotta get a picture. So he stopped, I got out, shot the picture. I got back in and said, man, man, this looks like a Frank Lloyd Wright structure, multiple roof lines. Lord. He said, well, how would you know that? I said, I recognize the design. Two weeks later, it was the University of California at Berkeley. And in the process of that, we went by this building. I'm in a cab this time. I said, oh, stop. I got to get a picture. Got out, shot the picture. Got back in. I said, man. This thing looks like it was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Look at that, multiple roof lines, big one. He said, how do you know that? I said, I recognize the design. And then I was at the University of Southern Florida. We're walking on the campus with the dean's students. And I'm going nuts. I said, hey, man, look at this. This university, it looks like it was designed by one of our famous northern architectures, Frank Lloyd Wright. And he said, well, hey, didn't you see the sign? I said, what sign? He pointed, here's a sign that said this entire university was designed by the famous architect, Frank Lloyd Wright. <laughs> oh, my. Helps to read the signs. Isn't that beautiful? Multiple roof lines, no windows on this side, lots of windows on the other side. And then, oh, my. Oh, my. Have you been to Springhouse? You're in Pennsylvania, around Pittsburgh, don't miss this one. Probably Frank Lloyd Wright's greatest design, spring house. Multiple roof lines, straddling a spring. Every room in this place is designed in such a way they don't need heat, they don't need air conditioning. The spring does it all. Incredible design. And... There is no reason for it. If I can get this to move, there we go. I mean, something to tell you something the evolutionists will never be able to answer for you. Why is there beauty in nature? Why is there beauty in nature? Franklin Wright's structures is not done because it makes them stronger or because of any kind of survival benefit. I mean, some of these buildings certainly are not survival of the fittest. But God has put his appreciation of beauty in everything from his music to his art to his architecture. So why do we see birds with incredible color? I noticed the screens on the side show it better than the one up top. Why? Folks, this doesn't give the bird a better chance of survival. It makes them sitting ducks. Well, they're not ducks, but anyway. <laughs> Predators can see them so much easier. So why is there beauty? 
architectural design. And look at that one, the golden pheasant. That is absolutely incredible. First time I saw one of those things, I just sat there and gawked at it. Incredible beauty. No reason for it. So, architectural design. And I've just shown you a very small cross-section of architectural design. But you've all seen the peacock. There's one more kind of design I want to share with you. And by the way, I want to say again, I've left a set of our books with Robert, and he will make them available to you. You can borrow them and read them and go through them. Some are in color, some are in black and white. All of these are examples of that. They look like this. But there's a new concept that's driving evolutionists crazy. It's called irreducible complexity. Originally, it was in a book by a guy by the name of Richard Behe, who is a PhD at Lehigh University, award-winning biologist. I'm going to do something simple. Um, I'm not into going into the, developed, into the deep biological stuff. But basically what Behe said is, when you got a complicated system, there are a number of things that have to be right for the system to have to exist, to be able to exist. And the question is, what are the odds of that? I like to use the physics, because that's my area, but I won't bother you with that. Over on the table, I have a little booklet which gives 47 evidences for design. If you want to see how many variables there are, that's just a, a quick look at some of them that I'm not taking time to go through. But here's what we get into with this discussion. First of all, a quick scientific look. There are many different kinds of galaxies in space. Does it make any difference what kind you're in? Answer is yeah. We're in a spiral type B galaxy. That means the stars in our galaxy are wound with a certain kind of tightness. That means there's a great deal of interstellar material in our galaxy. But there are galaxies called elliptical galaxies that have no interstellar material. They are much more common than spiral galaxies. How can you have a planet when there's nothing to make a planet out of? So the type of galaxy you have makes a difference. And I've listed just some of the ones that we know about. Here's an elliptical galaxy. Here's an irregular galaxy which has explosions taking place that we still don't understand the nature of, the web telescope's working on that one as we speak. But something makes them explode. So there, out of every 100 galaxies that astronomers see, roughly four of them could possibly have a functional solar system. So what are the odds? Well, four out of 100, pretty good number. When you look out there, you see there's different colors. And it's important to understand, I'm just flipping through this, that one of the things that determines this is where you are in the galaxy. You can't be in the center of the galaxy, too much activity going on there, black holes and all that stuff. The gravitational axis of the galaxy would rip a solar system apart. In order for a galaxy to have a solar system in it, there has to be an irregular, is called an axial gravity boundary, where a stable solar system could exist. In every spiral galaxy, there are two zones where you could have a functional solar system. How could you calculate the odds of being in the right zone? Well, that's a very simple calculation. You simply divide the volume of the donuts by the volume of the whole galaxy. Now, by the way, you don't have to understand all of this. I'm just running this to let you see how many factors there are, okay? So you come up with a, a certain number. Our sun, it's not a typical star. 
When you look out into space, one of the things you'll see is that some of the stars that we see in space, like the Pleiades, are much hotter than our sun. What would happen if the sun was 10 times hotter than it is? You think it's hot out there now? Imagine what it would be. Some of the stars are full of dust and debris. What would that do? Some of the stars are red-hot stars. Here's a distribution of the stars that you see in space. Notice that 95% of the stars that we see are the wrong kind of star to be able to support a functional solar system. And some of them are way too big. This is Betelgeuse in Orion. A Betelgeuse is so large that you could fit our whole solar system inside the one star. That's our, that's our solar system right there. You say, I don't see anything. That's the point. It's so small, we can't even put it on the screen. The size of the galaxy makes a huge difference. What are the odds of being in a place where the sun is the right age? If our sun became a red giant like Betelgeuse, it would look like the background. The Earth would look like the foreground. There would be no life here. We could tell by the odds of right, the stability of a star, the odds of having the nature of the star. This is a star that exploded called a nova. What are the odds of being in an area where there's no nova? And again, I'm skipping through this because of the time element. This is the thing you did probably in the ninth grade, and you have already forgotten it, right? It's called the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, where you plot the stars in space, the temperature of the star and the spectral class. Our sun is right in here. There are 20 million different possible computer plots on that plot, and only one that can support a functional solar system. What are the odds of having the right kind of star? Well, I could easily talk one in 20 million. And by the way, there's one kind of star that's just hard to visualize. And I'm not talking about the star that is back here, the blue giant. I'm talking about that star right there. That is a star that is so large and so massive and has so much gravity that nothing can escape it, even light. And as you know, it's called a black hole. This is an artist's drawing. I'll show you the actual picture in just a minute. What's happening here is this big blue giant is being sucked into this black hole, and it will eventually take that blue giant, which is a thousand times the size of our sun, and it will crush it to the mass of a size of a thumbtack. If I were to shine my laser beam by here, it would get caught in this thing. It would go around and around and around, and then it would just disappear. What are the odds of being in a part of space where there's no black hole? And by the way, I'm skipping a few here. By the way, there is our first picture of a black hole. We now have over a dozen pictures. You say, well, where is it? It's right here, and it's eating this star. As you can see, it's digital. Material located out here makes an orbit at the same distance as we are from the sun. Every day it makes one orbit. And you know it takes us 365 days, right? Material in that one is going around in one day because the gravitational pull of the black hole is so strong. That's what the odds are. How far you are from the sun makes a difference. If you're too close, it's too hot. If you're too far away, it's too cold. If you're the wrong size, it makes a difference. And you have the wrong gases. I mean, this goes on and on and on. I don't have enough time to show you all of them. What are the odds of not being in a part of space where there's no intruders? This week's Science News makes a report of the chances of the Earth being hit by a comet or an asteroid. You know what the article says? Get a copy of this week's Science News. It will be 100 years 
before there is any possible intrusion or collision of an astronomical body of the Earth because the Earth's position is defined that precisely by design. God designed the Earth in an incredible way. But you all know what happened, why that took place, right? What are you looking at here? A comet which struck the surface of Jupiter. 17 pieces of the comet hit the surface of Jupiter. And Jupiter had a collision which was so violent that the fireball produced by it was the size of the Earth. But that will never happen to the Earth. Because we have, get this, four comet sweepers that are the right size and in the right place. So it is a mathematical impossibility for a comet of any size to strike the Earth. They are Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Those four planets are so strategically placed that you don't have to go to bed tonight worrying about getting hit by an asteroid. What may hit you is a human, not a piece of rock. What incredible design. So, let's do a little calculation here. I'm skipping a few because I'm running out of time. Even the moon. Maybe I ought to do this one real quick. How about the tilt of the Earth? What controls it? Answer, the moon. Neil Cummings, the head of the astronomy department at the University of Maine, has a book out which is called, What If the Moon Didn't Exist? He points out if we didn't have a moon the size and the position of our moon, life on the Earth would become extinct in less than five years. Even having a moon is critical. But let's do a calculation. Now, I have chosen 10 variables here. I could list 47. The sheet is over there, if you doubt me. Odds of having the right galaxy. Remember what we said? We're talking 12, probably 12 and 25 million, but I'm just using 1 in 25. I'm reducing the odds enormously. The odds of being in the right place. I said 12 out of 50 million, 750,000. I'm reducing it to 1 in 100. The odds of having the right kind of star. Said one in 20 million, I'm going to use one in 25. The odds of having the right distance from the star, the right mass, the right spin, the right tilt, not having a large moon, magnetic field, no black holes, and having comet sweepers. What are the odds? Okay, now, if you are a mathematician, you know how to calculate that. And probably I don't need to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway because somebody might not be aware of it. We got a deck of cards here. 52 cards in the deck, right? And in this deck, I have an ace of spades. I'll put it in the deck. I got a professional gambler sitting here in the front row. I'm going to ask him to take a card, any card. What are the odds of him drawing the ace of spades? One in 52. Lots of gamblers in the room. Okay, take a card. See what you can do with it. All right, he drew a card. Well, he's trying to draw three, but we won't let him do that. And uh, he saw the bottom card. Let's try it again. Here we go. Yeah, uh, you cheated. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to have to use a different card. Ace of diamonds. He keeps seeing the bottom of the card because I'm looking down. At... All right, ace of diamonds this time. All right, ace of diamonds. Odds are one in 52, and he got the jack. All right. <laughs> Now, let's suppose I say, hey, this guy's so good looking. I'll tell you what, I'm going to hold out the deck of cards. He's going to draw the ace of diamonds twice in a row, back to back. What are the odds? Yeah, one in 52 squared. So he draws a card. It's not the ace of diamonds. He draws it again. The odds, again, it's not the cards. It's one out of 52 times one out of 52. That's one out of 5,204, right? Okay, now I say to him, okay, this time he's going to draw the ace of diamonds four times in a row out of a deck of cards. What are the odds? 
One out of 52 times one out of 52 times one out of 52 times one out of 52, that's one chance times 7,211,316. The point is, not very likely. Okay, back up there. It doesn't do any good to be in the right kind of galaxy if you're in the wrong place in the galaxy. It didn't do any good to be in the right galaxy, the right place in the galaxy if they're running around the wrong kind of star. It doesn't, have any, it doesn't make any difference in the right kind of right kind. Of, if you're sitting right on top of that star, you're going to burn, baby, burn! <laughs> and if you're too far away, you're going to freeze! So what do you have to do with those numbers? You have to multiply. That times 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 that. And if you do that, even with those reduced numbers, and with only 10 variables, and there's 47 on my sheet, what you get is one chance out of 17578125000000000. And the atheist says, if there's any chance at all, I'll take it. <laughs> okay. Okay. I won't argue that. But let me point something out to you. If you jump out of an airplane 10,000 feet above St. Louis with no parachute on, nothing but your birthday suit, what are the odds of your survival? Let's suppose I say to you, I will give you a million dollars. If you'll jump out of an airplane 10,000 feet in the air with nothing on but your birthday suit, who will be willing to do it? You know, I've never had an atheist hold up their hand on that one. <laughs> Nobody in possession of their mental faculties <laughs> would gamble their life on odds of one in 10 million. But do you realize that this number is 176 million times worse than that. Now, nobody in this room would gamble their life on ones and one in 10 million. So why would you gamble your eternal soul on a probability that's 176 million times less likely than what you already said you wouldn't take on your life? By not having your hand up a moment ago, you are admitting you know that there is no rational reason to believe that the earth was a product of chance. And I want to say to you again, hey, look, I took minimum figures. I limited the number of variables. If you put all 47 in there, you know where you are? You're at 100 times worse than what is called the Drake limit. You know what that is? That's a probability that scientists admit can be relegated as being impossible. Impossible. You cannot believe we are the product of chance. And if you want to write down those numbers, there they are, but they are in our materials. And it's important to understand that what we are looking at here is a simple statement that God makes that, again, is supported by every shred of evidence we have. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There was a beginning. The beginning was caused. It was caused by an intelligence. Now you can say, well, I don't believe it was the God of the Bible. Okay. Then tomorrow we'll talk about what is God and who created God and why Jesus Christ. Why not Muhammad? Why not Buddha? Why not Baha'u'llah? What is the evidence? What is the evidence? You do not just blindly accept it because you were forcibly dragged to church three times a week. Look at the evidence. 
And by the way, we haven't even talked about the origin of life. <laughs> Most of you had that one, right? In high school, remember the Stanley Miller experiment on the origin of life? Was that life? No, it was an amino acid. What were the odds? Now, I want to say again, I'm not throwing you my opinion. I'm talking evidence you can research for yourself. You can read the scientific works. Look at this one. I made reference to Hoyle in our last session. No way a Darwinian struggle for survival. That's the evidence. Einstein. There was a beginning, it was caused, and it was caused by an intelligence, and we looked at Romans in our last session. But there are lots of other biblical passages. Look at Isaiah, who raises the question of creation. Look at the psalmist, who clearly shows an understanding of the nature of the cosmos in which we live. My sources are scientific sources. On the table over there, we still have some copies of our bibliography. You want a list of references? Please help yourself. We have our DVD series. I've left a set with Robert, but you can get it online. DoesGodExist.tv has all of our DVDs. You can watch them free of charge. And I said this before, but let me say it again. If you've got a skeptic who says they don't believe in God, Ask them to watch the first DVD. Don't let them jump around. Let them watch the first DVD. It's free. If they raise a question, send it to me. I answer about 200 emails a day. And I'll be glad to respond to anything they want to raise about that material. By the way, parents, we also have a set of children's DVDs written and produced at a child's level. And I left a set of those with Robert for you to borrow. We also have a book in which we have put all this into a book form. I left a case of those with Robert. He can loan them to you free of charge. Or if he wants to sell them, whatever. The money's going to go to support what's happening here, so it's not going to come to me. And I mentioned the Dandy Designs, but we have other books. We have Q&A sessions. And at uh, college and university campuses, those get a little heated. My all-time record for a Q&A was one that went for nine and a half hours. I don't do that anymore. I'm getting too old and decrepit, but back in those days, that was a norm. Good questions. My own teaching experience. And again, our quarterly is available free of charge. If you would like to read the articles that we have, my wife Cynthia has an article in each issue the scientist issue. There's the latest copy over there. It has the web telescope material in it. If you'd like to be on our mailing list, there are some blue sign-up sheets on the table. Just put your name and address on there. We will add you to the quarterly publication list. It comes out four times a year, and it's free of charge. So take a look. If you would like to be on our mailing list, please let us know. One more thing. I wanted to allow enough time to be able to explain this to you. We have an extensive jail ministry. You know why people are in jail? Well, for a lot of them, it's either they never were taught God's word or they have left it. They either were never taught or they have left it. Right now we have 5,443, I think it was the last time I looked, students who are taking our basic course. And we have, from that course, reference material to a number of programs that our Brotherhood offers on, one of them is called Prisoner of Hope, talking about life and how people in prison can work their way out of it. Another one talked about Freedom Steps, which leads to CASA, that's Christians Against Substance Abuse, which is a program to help guys and gals that are in prison because of drug abuse. So we have students who are taking that material. We also have a college-level course. The first level of the college course is available over there on the table. And I'll be talking about the problem of human suffering in our lesson tomorrow when we talk about why pain and suffering.
And I have to tell you from the start, that lesson comes more from the school of hard knocks than anything else. I'm a parent of a child born, this is my son Timothy, born blind, mentally challenged, with cerebral palsy, schizophrenia, and he's blind. And we lost him to COVID. So I've had to deal with some things. And it's from the school of hard knocks that I talk about this question of pain and suffering, not some big, heavy philosophical discussion. And we'll talk about that tomorrow. But we have other people that work with us. Judy Hart Ragsdale has had cancer three times. She has brought over 100 people to Christ through cancer, using her own personal experience as a guide for that process. And we've mentioned the children's programs that we have. We also have an archaeology series. We have a new archaeology series by John Cooper that deals with archaeological proof of the validity of the Bible. We already have nine lessons in it. We will have, hopefully, 13 lessons by the end of the year. So all of this material is offered to you free of charge. We want to be there to support you. I can't go out and do as many programs as I used to. But isn't it wonderful we have technology that lets us reach out? I used to consider it a pretty good lectureship when we had 100 people to talk to in a program on a college campus. Last year, we studied with over 2 million people through the media, through the uh, courses that we offer online and through the mail. So you never get too old. I'm the oldest person in here, I think. Anybody over 85? Uh-huh, so I've got the record, right? I'm the oldest Oglefogie here. Oh, you never get too old to continue to be able to reach out. So use what you have. Let's close with a prayer. Father, I thank you so much for our time together. I pray for those listening, Father, that they will understand, they will think on the tools God has given them, that they'll be able to take the material that you have given us in your word and in your nature that the truth of your existence and the reality of your nature can be seen by every one of us as we reach out to a lost and a dying world. Bless us in our understandings. Help us be effective in using the tools you have given us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so right next. They hand me the mics that are not off, and I always want to say to Timmy, Timmy, come turn me on, but that wouldn't be really proper, I guess, you know, so. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, as we, uh, as we uh, listen, John, I know questions come up, and so we got people with mics that we're going to interdisperse, as a matter of fact. Uh, how many mics do we have out there? One, got two of them out there. If you will raise your hand, someone will go to somebody, bring you a mic, and you can ask John whatever it is through the mic. The reason we need it through the mic, it is being, all of us need to know the question, so we'll understand the answer better. And it's also something that we'll, uh, that we'll be, you know, have in our archives for, in our videos and stuff. So if you've got a question, raise your hand, and somebody will uh, come to you. Somebody's got we do this program on a college campus. There's a, if there's 50 people there, there's 55 hands up. And that's, that's got a message right there, doesn't it? Here we go. We've got one right up here. I... Hi. Thank you for talking to us today. Um, I'm kind of curious on whether there's any proof of heaven existing or hell existing or anything else in between. I don't know. Just wanted to know your thoughts on that. One of the problems that we get into with atheists especially, but also with people in the church, is understanding what is physical and what is spiritual. When you die, there's not going to be an angel that meets you at the top of the coffin and say, uh, the, of the, uh, of the uh, burial thing and says, go past the third star to the fifth gold city on the left. 
That's not what heaven is. Heaven's not a place. It's a spiritual existence with God. Tomorrow, I'll start out in our session with what is God. God is not an old man in the sky. It's been interesting to me. Uh, when you look at most of the pictures of God on literature in the Bible Belt, it's a Caucasian, six-foot-two, blue-eyed person with uh, a crew cut. When I was in Africa, it was a person of color. Completely different appearance. When I was in China, it was an oriental. See, what's your concept of God? That's an important question. Do we understand when the Bible says God is a spirit, what that means? When Jesus said that we need to pray for those and turn the other cheek, what was he talking about? See, we tend to attach physical applications to everything. Hell is not a place in the ground. My mother used to say to me, you really believe I'm going to be put in a hole in the ground and burned eternally if I don't live just the way some preacher thinks I ought to? Quote, unquote. That's not what hell is. Hell is separation from God, separation from the spiritual. And heaven is unity with the spiritual. So no, there is no physical evidence of heaven or hell because heaven and hell are not physical places. But they are conditions, and I think there's logical evidence for that. And that most people understand that. Recently, I was involved indirectly with a family whose older person was my age, and he was dying. And then uh, the family is sitting around, and he finally dies. And one of the persons said, what do we do now? And one of the guys said, well, I guess we ought to pray. Whereupon another guy said, well, does anybody here know how to pray? And then they all started crying. Why? Because they had no spiritual answer. And all they could visualize, because they had heard the stories, was that their loved one was in hell. When my wife died, one of the things that the guys at school that I taught with said that was the first time they ever went to a funeral where there was so much laughter. Think about that for a minute. Funerals are not sad times. They're happy times, joyous times. And I watched my son die, and one of the nurses standing there said, don't you feel something with your son dying? Yeah, I said, yeah, I feel joy. My son, Tim, is now free of pain. He now can see. He now can hear. It's a time of joy. Hell is when you don't have any of that, and heaven is when you have all of it. So my answer is yes, but I want to qualify it. It's not a physical place. And that gets on to tomorrow's discussion. Thank you. Good question. Well, there's three hands up, so. <clears throat> yes, sir. So uh, I know we start with the basis assumption that we exist, but I know I've at least have come across a lot more people recently that, or scientists even, that want to say that we exist in a simulation or something along those lines. What is there that, I obviously, I don't know if there's a lot, but what can you say to someone that, genuine believes that maybe we don't exist. What happens when you have a simulation? If something is an illusion, what happens? Can they perceive pain? See, an illusion or a simulation is devoid of pain and suffering. So ask them, if we are an illusion, why is there physical pain? They cannot answer that. There has to be a physical makeup to endure pain. What is pain? It's a process of a nerve reaction that's physical to a physical sensation. An illusion doesn't have that. So ask them to define what they mean by a simulation or by an illusion. 
And you know, there's an awful lot of stuff thrown around out there that is not realistic. Have you ever heard multiverse ideas? Well, maybe there's many universe. Lots of universes out there. We're just one that happens to be right. Well, that's an interesting fantasy. But it's not scientific. To be scientific, you have to be able to falsify it. It has to be able to test it. If you can't test it, if you can't falsify it, then it is not science. An atheist says, well, you can't show me God. You can't touch God. That's right. So what does that mean? It means you have to function indirectly on evidence. You can't take some object and make it God. That's the problem with idolatry, folks. That's why idols are meaningless. That's a good question. I hear that one a lot. Yes, sir. I think using Robert's language, you got turned off. So I'm not too familiar with your story. So um, if you don't mind sharing with us one more time, what was it that made you say, I'm done living the atheist life. I'm going to embrace God. <clears throat> the first lesson that I'm planning to do, Robert, correct me, where are you? Carrie, we're doing Why Left Atheism Sunday morning. Sunday morning, I'm doing the first worship service. I'm going to tell my own story of why I left atheism. It was not one thing. It was a whole bunch of things. And I would suggest to you that people don't come to loss of faith by just one thing. See, I was raised by atheist parents who misrepresented Christianity to me. My father taught in an all-black school in Talladega, Alabama. He was the only white professor on the staff. I remember when I was about five years old, my father woke me up in the middle of the night and said, come here, I want to show you something so you can see what Christians do. He took me downstairs, and there was a cross burning in our front yard with a bunch of guys wearing white blankets, sheets, whatever you want to call it, dancing around them. My father said, that's what, that's what Christians do. That kind of experience weighed on me. But I had become very active in atheism. I was president of the Indiana Atheist Association. And I decided I, every time I had a debate with a religious person, I won because they didn't know why they believed. They just believed. So I was pretty good at it. But I kept knowing, boy, I sure hope they don't say thus and so, because I don't know how to answer that. And I finally decided, you know, one of these days, I want to meet some religious guy that knows what he's talking about. So I put all my atheist junk away and started reading the Bible and decided to write a book. The book was going to be called All the Stupidity of the Bible. All the stuff that I had been told atheists believe, all the stuff my father had told me. And finally, after seven years, I gave up and became a Christian because I realized everything I had been told was wrong. And there was overwhelming evidence that God is and the Bible is his word. That's a short answer. If you want to hear the whole thing, join us on Sunday morning. <laughs> Did you find his battery? Or he's got a mic, but he has, it's dead. Hello. There you are. <laughs> it was a little, a little too loud. Um, so I don't believe in, like, aliens, but I'm, like, super, like, into that whole topic. And you know what? Um, so, like, obviously we just talked about, like, the odds of, like, you know, that possibly existing or whatever. And obviously it's not even, like, feasible to reach the speed of light for us. Like, they would have to go through, like, a hole, like, um, not like a black hole, but what's the other one? I forget. Wormhole. They would have to go through that, maybe. So, like, what's your, like, response to, like, that whole, like, topic, like, aliens possibly existing or, like, them even, like, reaching us, if that's even, like, possible? I have a lesson titled UFOs, Ancient Astronauts, the Bermuda Triangle, the Loch Ness Monster, and God. Don't have time for it here. 
Einstein's equation, T equals T zero over the square root of one minus V squared over C squared. You know what I'm dealing with there? If V is greater than C, then it's one minus a number bigger than one, which means you have a negative number, and that's a square root. What's the square root of a negative number? It's imaginary, isn't it? What is imaginary in a physical frame? It means a change of dimensions. So is it possible there are dimensions other than us? Yeah. Is it possible that God created beings other than us? I had a debate with a leading atheist in Washington, D.C. years ago. And an atheist was on the other side of the microphone. And somebody called in and said, what would you do if an alien landed in the White House lawn with a Bible in his hand and said, has Jesus been here yet? And the atheist said, punt. And I said, yeah. But understand something. One thing we have learned by our exploration in space is that there's nothing and no one anywhere near us. Is this the only place God created? I don't know. But it will be interesting if there is someone out there and if we did make touch with them to find out if they know about Jesus. I don't know. The one thing I do know is that that isn't going to affect my life. Of course, I don't have much time left, but not even you guys. So no, I don't throw that out. I don't throw that out. But I'll tell you one thing. Right now, UFOs and aliens and all that stuff is a way to make a quick amount of money, but there's absolutely no validity to it right now. Yeah, that's what I get all the time. That's an important question. Aren't we alone? Well, for all practical purposes, yeah. Good questions, folks. See where this could go? You understand why it can go nine and a half hours? Got another one? Yes? I don't know if this is dumb, but I have a friend who says there's stories and scriptures that are left out of the Bible. What are your thoughts on that? Well, of course there are. The Bible told what God wanted us to know, not things that were irrelevant. I graduated from Notre Dame. The priest, who was the head of my department, uh, it was a geology degree, <laughs> we used, when we went on field trips, he would have us housed together, me and the priest. And one of the things that I would do is ask him questions about that. And uh, as you know, the Catholic Bible is not the same as the one that contains the books that we have. And I asked him one time, I said, you got all these other books, do they make any difference? And he said, no, he says, there's nothing in, them in your Bible. We can go with your Bible. And I think that is absolutely true. There's nothing in those books. Yes, there are other books out there that duplicate that. The Bible even makes reference to the book of Enoch. We don't know what that book is. But it doesn't matter. We've got all we need without it. And it probably is left out because it didn't contribute anything. So yes, there are books out there. And who knows, archaeologically, we may find something. But everything we have found archaeologically so far supports the biblical record. That's what our new biblical, uh, our biblical archaeology series is about. I see a hand way back there. Uh, yes. My, my question is, um, if God knows everything we're going to do before he even creates us, how can we say that we have free will? <laughs> you want to tackle that one? I'm, just, I'm glad it's the last question. <laughs> one of the things about God is that he is outside of time. And what that means is that God can restrict his knowledge of the future if he chooses to do so. Now think about that one for a minute. There are times when a response is made that God apparently did not expect. Remember Jonah and Nineveh? It repented God that he, well, that sounds like he didn't realize that was going to happen. Why? Not because he couldn't know, but because he chose not to go. Why is that important? Because the only way that we can be allowed to make choice is if God withholds his foreknowledge of what's going to happen. 
So one part of a superior being, a being outside of space and time, is the ability to not be limited by space and time. That is so important because, as you just suggested, free will cannot exist unless that is true. That is a very, very good question, and that's a very short answer. We could spend a lot of time on that one. Good question.